Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. This week, I... In the introduction to my program, I would want to do something a little bit different. I want to touch upon a topic which is unique to Israel and has caused quite a storm. The question is whether a reward for academic accomplishment can be affected by political considerations. The Israel Prize for Mathematics, which is very prestigious, was supposed to be awarded to Professor Oded Goldreich of the Weizmann Institute of Science. Then it turns out that the Minister of Education decided that their professor should not get the award because he had signed a petition calling for a boycott of, of Ariel University, which is located in what's known as the, in the West Bank, it's a prestigious um, university, and the professor called for a boycott of Ariel University and appealed to the award committee to allow him to have the award for science, even though the minister of education uh, is opposed to it because of his political position. There are those who say that a political opinion should be separated from academic accomplishment, and there are others who say that in a proper democratic society, whoever supports a boycott should be ashamed, and and the government should act accordingly. This is a situation, by the way, to the best of my knowledge, does not come up and has not come up in countries but it is quite unique to Israel. And therefore, I just wanted to mention it, and if the readers follow on internet, the name of Professor Oded Goldreich, G-O-L-D-R-E-I-C-H, you can read more about this uniquely Israeli problem. I'll be back after the break. Thanks again for listening. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again. 
There's been much discussion lately of whether Israel is witnessing the start of a new wave of terrorism. This is based on a rise in the number of serious attacks that have been carried out in recent weeks, which includes the murder of someone in Jerusalem's old city last month, a, a fellow from South Africa named Eli Kay. There was a stabbing attack on an Israeli in Jaffa on the very same day, and there are several other stabbing and vehicular ramming attacks. Interestingly enough, the ages of the Palestinian attackers is not unusual. The 14-year-old Palestinian girl who stabbed a Jewish mother of five in Jerusalem is expected to be indicted this week. And on Saturday night, a 65-year-old Palestinian woman was arrested after trying to stab a Jewish man near the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron. So these are women between the ages of 14 and 65, which is really something of interest. More than 10 Israelis have been wounded in at least seven attacks since mid-November. Hundreds of attacks are thwarted before they can be carried out. Last month, the Shin Bet, announced it had arrested some 50 members of a Hamas terrorist cell who possessed a large quantity of weapons and materiel for at least four suicide belts. U.S. Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process, someone called Tor Winiston, issued a statement several weeks ago saying he was alarmed, I'm quoting, He was alarmed by the escalating violence in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem, which is claiming the lives of Israelis and Palestinians, unquote. He made special mention of the retaliatory attacks by Israeli settlers against Palestinians. Again, that's his quote, retaliatory attacks by Israeli settlers. All the Palestinian fatalities that Wenisland is referring to were perpetrators of attacks. They were terrorists. The Israelis were the victim. His statement is part of a disturbing phenomenon of downplaying the terrorist attacks on Jews or linking it to what they have called a cycle of violence. Israeli officials and the president down have condemned violence by Jews against Palestinians, while the Palestinian Authority continues to foster an environment in which martyrdom is seen as the highest value. Every successful attack by a Palestinian on a Jew encourages more. There are copycat attacks by so-called lone wolves and by organized terrorist cells. Every attack, keep in mind, every attack is an attempted murder. The terrorists do not set out to injure their victims. They set out to kill them. There's an unfortunate tendency to dismiss terrorist attacks that take place over the green line as being about settlements. 
Relating to the victims in terms of being settlers delegitimizes and even dehumanizes those Jews. The victims in the recent upsurge of attacks were not targeted for being settlers, but for being Jewish. For the terrorist organization, all of Israel is considered a legitimate target, and all Jewish Israelis are perceived by the Palestinians as settlers. What starts in Judea and Samaria does not end in Judea and Samaria. Terrorists attack where, where it is easy to, for, for them. If it is easier to, for terrorists to throw rocks and Molotov cocktails at cars or open fire in a drive-by attack or ambush in Judea and Samaria, then that's where they will do it most often. However, it doesn't mean that the rest of the country, that the rest of Israel is not at risk. Indeed, these terrorist attacks around the world have shown that no one is safe anywhere. There's no justification for terrorism anywhere, period. Not the economy, not the settlements, not a peace process, or the lack of a peace process. It is morally repugnant to blame the victims to where they live or where they work or where they travel. When an attack is dismissed because it is only on a settler, it is but one tiny step on the proverbial slippery slope. Further downhill are attacks on all Israelis and all Jews anywhere and everywhere. And ultimately, nobody of any religion will be safe. It starts with the, with the Jews, and then it continues. It's like the old story that the Jews are like the miner's canary. They're the first ones to become aware of the poisonous air in a, in a mine. And the Jews are the first ones to suffer, but it carries on from them to elsewhere. Uh, nobody anywhere will be safe if you condone attacks on Israelis and on Jews. The truth of the matter is that the world has to take this seriously and support Israel in its battle against the terrorists because terrorism will be spread and no one will be safe. I want to use the remaining few minutes of this portion of my program to turn to a totally different subject, but I think it's an important one. It'll soon become in the headlines. There is no doubt that Israel must immediately prepare to absorb a wave of olim, from, should Russia invade Ukraine. It's a far-off war. It will affect Israel. American intelligence agencies warn that Moscow is positioning a large number of battalion tactical groups along Ukraine's borders for a possible major offensive next year. The 2014 secessionist conflict and Ukraine's Donbass region, together with retaliatory sanctions, 
against a limited number of Russian individuals and companies, in the end dramatically increased Aliyah from both Ukraine and from Russia. 30,000 Ukrainian Olim arrived between 2014 and 2018, while nearly 40,000 came from Russia, which exceeded, in that short period of time, exceeded the close to 37,000 Russian over the entire previous decade who came to Israel. According to the American Jewish Yearbook, in the year 2019, Approximately 200,000 Ukrainians are eligible to make Aliyah under the law of return. Although most neither identify as Jews, nor are they Jews halakhically, tens of thousands seeking refuge might apply for Israeli citizenship. Simultaneously, Severe Western sanctions could motivate another 600,000 Russian citizens who are eligible for Aliyah, mostly non-Jews, but halakhically, to contemplate emigration. Just a week after Secretary of State Antony Blinken threatened that a Russian invasion would trigger high-impact economic measures, that we've refrained from taking in the past, the European Union foreign policy chief announced, chief announced any aggression against Ukraine will come with a political consequences and with a high economic cost for Russia. Accordingly, any Russian-Ukrainian war would precipitate a Russian financial meltdown. And there are there are estimates of close to 426,000 non-Jewish Israelis today, which is just under 5% of populations, who are citizens of Israel due to the law of return. Immigrants in the former Soviet Union and their descendants constantly consist Consist, constitute virtually all of these non-Jews living in Israel. And the they're all anti-Soviet because they're anti-communism, but they're also not Jewish. And so there's a, we're, we're going to see in, an increase in these kinds of people who are not Jewish become problematic in Israel and will create a whole new world of problems here in Israel. So the whether the our government will accept the wave of non halakhically non of halakhically non Jewish Ukrainian and Russian Olim, whether that's desirable or not, but it is a problem that soon may raise its head. I'll be back after the break.
Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For Lighten Up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon something which has been under the headlines, but it is now becoming an issue, and that is the fact that the IDF, the Israeli army, has changed its rules of engagement, which are called ROE, in order to permit soldiers to shoot at fleeing Palestinian rock and Molotov cocktail throwers in the West Bank. Could this move further endanger the soldiers who carry out such orders in the future? Their danger will be before the International Criminal Court as well as undermine how that court views Israel's justice system. One thing making the issue even cloudier is that the IDF is not publicly responding to inquiries on it, either when it made a change in the ROE just in November, just a couple weeks ago, or recently when a comment was requested. For example, it is unclear exactly when the rules allow soldiers to fire on rock or Molotov cocktail throwers who are fleeing. Is it in the immediate aftermath of their throwing an object at the soldiers or when they are still in their immediate vicinity? And if those principles are coming into play, how well defined are they? Is there a set number of seconds or meters for a shooting at someone fleeing? Does the size of the rock thrown matter? Did the soldiers at least need to have felt an imminent threat to their life when the rock or Molotov cocktail was thrown? There has not been any public clarity on this from the Israeli army. Rather, it seems that right-wing politicians and elements of the military who campaigned for the change have been leaking the updates as a way of signaling their victory following various incidents in the summer, or even more recently, when soldiers were killed or wounded. These elements were angry that soldiers' lives might be in danger because of a perceived hesitance to defend themselves due to concerns that the Army Legal Division might prosecute them for being too aggressive. But the details are critical. 
There are many areas of multiple competing views where Israel can feel free to take more aggressive interpretations because it is dealing with large terrorist groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas, which would wipe out the Jewish state if they could. That's their intentions. But this is not one of those areas. The new rules do not relate to the same kind of concerted act by Hezbollah or Hamas terrorists. The attackers could be using either a gun or a knife. All of those scenarios would obviously be a serious military threat, and no questions would have been asked even before the announcement recently about using firepower to kill and stop such attacks. The problem is that most democracies, one cannot shoot to kill someone who is fleeing. That is the way it is in most democracies. There used to be more democracies that had rules allowing homeowners, for example, to shoot thieves in order to kill them, even if it might seem like they were fleeing based on the idea that anyone robbing a home was someone aggressive enough to murder the homeowner, or the, the, uh, the Western concept that a man's home is his castle, and therefore he has a right to use any means to protect him. But however, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that is not a a mostly that is now a mostly obsolete rule in democratic countries. There are still some obvious legal solutions for the Israeli army. Maybe the rule is actually to shoot, but to shoot for the knees and not shoot to kill. Maybe the rule is limited when one is attacked to a rock, attacked by an Iraq or a Molotov cocktail that was thrown in such a way that it was clearly being used by the terrorists as a potential deadly weapon, not just to carry out a generic low-grade violent protest. There are all kind of rocks thrown at violent protests. Or maybe the rule relates more to a situation where the soldiers are outnumbered or surrounded, and there is a possibility they could be overwhelmed despite holding weaponry superior to that of the Palestinians that they face. There are all kinds of uh, situations in which a decision has to be made at the spur of the moment. But part of the additional problem here is that this decision comes after a a new decision by the government permitting soldiers to fire on Palestinians and Bedouin who are trying to steal weaponry from army bases. The stealing of weaponry from army bases, particularly in the Negev, by Bedouin is quite common. There are records already of the hundreds of uh, military um, systems, primarily uh, small arms and rifles that have been stolen from military bases by local Bedouins. Once again, democracies generally do not allow firing on thieves. Uh, 
and it was unclear if they could be fired upon if they were unarmed. Whether these thieves, I don't know whether the majority of thieves are armed or unarmed, but many are indeed unarmed. So, you know, how do you handle that situation? If there would be a wave of soldiers getting injured by rock throwing, Israel would have a stronger case against all kinds of criticism. There are people who criticize Israel under any circumstances, but um, the, uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is, most soldiers who are confronted by attackers have responded very rapidly. I think the most, I don't know, but I think the most common, common uh, method of response is tear gas. But we're talking now the question of deadly weapons. There seems to be an effort to deter rock throwing in general. How? By publicizing to the Palestinians that it could be a more dangerous risk. In other words, if it were known that the army was free to use weapons to defend themselves against attackers and make this fact known, there's a good that itself would be a deterrent against terrorism. The uh, this dovetails, by the way, into a broader issue of rock throwing by Palestinians, not simply at soldiers, but at the, especially Jewish vehicles traveling in the West Bank. This uh, situation is uh, brought again to the forefront when uh, several uh, settlers were killed, Shiva boys were killed last week by um, killed by the by lethal weapons that is, and not by rock throwing uh, in the West Bank. What is most likely is that these issues will play out in public when soldiers actually start shooting at retreating Palestinian rock throwers and. In addition, not only will be shooting at retreating uh, rock throwers, but the inc the incidents and the actions will be caught on camera, and these issues are going to rise again into the headlines. So the 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 uh, the bottom line is that the the army, the IDF has changed the rules of encounters, making it easier for soldiers to defend themselves against rock throwers and Molotov cocktail throwers by the use of deadly weapons. Now, if this becomes more common, there were literally hundreds of uh, attacks on uh, that are not recorded. They don't, they don't get into the newspapers. If, if uh, rocks are thrown in Israeli corn, I, I've had this myself in the past, uh, it doesn't necessarily get reported. But if these uh, things don't get reported, but they result in a, a deadly response by the army or even by an individual settler who happens to be armed, it'll certainly get into the headlines. So the consequences of the army changes its policy uh, 
the may be found that publicly the consequences of this change uh, will make may come out publicly very soon in the future because these things are absolutely bound to happen. So the rules have been changed, uh, and there is going to be there are going to be headlines with the results of these rules. And uh, we'll have to see what's going to happen. The change in the rules is going to make a difference. I'll be back after the break. Are you tired of political correctness and the fear that you might offend someone? I'm not afraid to offend you. Wow, look who's talking tough. One has to be tough to keep sane today. Hi, I'm Alan Skorsky. And I'm Bela Seabrow. And join us every Wednesday for The Definitive Wrap as we interview the most sought-after guests and expose progressive trends that masquerade as enlightenment but actually destroy our freedoms. We are the No Wolf Zone, so buckle up for this exciting show. Buckling up, but I'm driving. <laughs> sure, you can drive, but I'm the navigator. Tune in for the No Nonsense, the definitive rap show, every Wednesday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to uh, touch upon a number of items that are not related. It's what I like to call under the radar. They are things that are happening in Israel or in the Jewish community in general that don't get big headlines. If they're, they're they, don't, they certainly don't appear on radio and television. And even when they appear in the news here in Israel, they're relegated to a back page. So these items are not related. I want to start with the first one. The Greek Jewish community is celebrating the return of a trove of manuscripts and community documents that the Nazis stole nearly 80 years ago. The Central Board of Jewish Communities in Greece announced in a statement earlier this month that Russia, which which was in possession of the archives, has agreed to return them to their origin after a diplomatic process supported by the Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis. What happened was that Nazis looted Thessalonica, which was formerly home to one of Europe's most vibrant Jewish communities, The Nazis did this in July 1942. The Soviet Union then came into possession of the archives after capturing the city in 1945. The Red Army took these archives to Moscow where they remained in the possession of the Russian Federation. 
Now, they have been returned. And the Greek Jews uh, are really with immense emotion welcome the decision of Russian President Putin that Russia returns the pre-war archives of the Jewish communities to their homes. According to the news, the archives include books and religious artifacts from 30 synagogues, libraries, and communal institutions in Thessalonica. Now, before the Holocaust, Thessalonica was one of the most Jewish cities in Europe, with having, interestingly enough, a Jewish majority or a Jewish plurality for most of the 19th century. As a matter of fact, it is a port city, and the majority of the port workers were the were Jews, and uh, as a result of that, the port was actually closed on Shabbat. Many of these port workers came to Israel in the 1920s to help to build Haifa port. At any rate, the city's Jewish community was primarily Sephardi, though it also included a small community of Jews Romaniotes and Judeo-Greek speakers from Greece and Turkey who predated the Sephardic migration to the area after their expulsion in 1492. In other words, one very unless you go to Greece, you're not going to meet someone who speaks Judeo-Greek. It's their form of the what the Ashkenazis call Yiddish, and also Romani Oats. I visited Athens some time ago, and we were in one of their synagogues. Very fascinating. Uh, during the spring and summer of the uh, months of 1943, almost all the Jews in Thessaloniki were deported to Auschwitz. So for Greek Jewry, these archives bring light to its historic uh, and their sacred heirlooms and bring them uh, that they've been, their restitution would mean justice and would transmit knowledge about a part of the Greek people that contributed to the progress of the country. They no longer exist. Most I think there's a very small group. Uh, 60,000 Greek Jews were reported and exterminated in Nazi death camps. So this is a return of Greek Jewish archives to their home nearly 80 years after Nazis looted them. It got very little attention. It's packed away in the back pages of the papers. But I think it's really important and it's really quite moving. The next item is totally different, but, but I think it's interesting. Again, it's way under the radar. The researchers uh, from the University of Haifa and from Stanford University in the United States analyzed two pottery strainers unearthed in two archaeological sites and were able to confirm they were indeed used to strain beer. In other words, around 7,000 years ago, beer was produced in what is now Israel and was likely consumed on convivial occasions, according to these new these international scholars. 
They published their finds in something called the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, and it suggests a more complex level of social relations in the region known during the period known as the, uh, I think I think you pronounce it the Chalcolithic, or rather the Catholic, uh, than was previously thought. The earliest evidence for production of cereal-based fermented beverages in the southern Levant was documented in the context of complex hunter-gatherers. However, so far there is only limited data regarding the evolution of alcohol production and consumption. To up to the early Bronze Age, when a clear rise in the evidence for alcohol consumption is visible. So we're talking about people making beer uh, in the millennia between 20,000 years ago and 5,500 years ago. as a 15,000-year period. So the... Um, According to the experts, the question of alcohol consumption is particularly interesting in the uh, period 8,000 to 5,800 years ago when important developments emerged in social organization, cultic practices, and crafts and farming abilities. You know, it's really interesting when you go in to buy a beer, never occurs to anybody to wonder how, where the beer, how, how beer came about. And it goes back, back way back. Ten, in any, about at least 5,500 years ago. And what did they find? They found strainer vessels. They're used for filtering liquids or sifting through materials. And this team from the United States and Israel analyzed one artifact dating to around 7,000 years ago, a prehistoric site in the Jordan Valley called Tel Tzaf, and the second one uncovered the village of Pekin in the Upper Galilee, which goes back to about 5,000 years ago also. The, in first case, the strainer was retrieved in an area where cooking facilities stood, and the vessel found in Pekin was found near the entrance to a cave used as a burial site. So there's a lot of uh, new novel data for beer being, being produced here in Israel thousands of years ago. Israelis, by the way, are not big beer drinkers. Interesting to note, however, that beer may have originated, originated here in what is now Israel. So uh, maybe that's another Jewish first. I'm not sure. We'll have to see what other archaeologists have to say. Here's another very quick item. History will be made next summer when a female colonel, whose name can't be mentioned, will be appointed as military attache to the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog. The president has made it known that he wanted to appoint a woman to the post, uh, and, then, and so the defense establishment here in Israel, in coordination with the defense minister and the chief of staff, accepted his request. This new lady, a colonel, 40 years old, will be the first woman to serve as a military attache to the president. 
on assuming her position to be promoted to the rank of Brigadier General. Now, right now, uh, she will su succeed the guy who's there now, uh, General Abarukin, has served in the role for the past three years. Uh, this woman, who is Central Command's Chief Intelligence Officer, has served in the Israeli Army for 22 years and has held various field and administrative commands. She's married, she has two children, and holds degrees in Middle Eastern history. Our president said that she would be a welcome addition to his team of advisors and that her professional and personal talents will bring tremendous value to the institution of the presidency, presidency the army, and the state. Uh, according to the president, and I quote, the glass ceiling is being smashed every day in Israel. I'm proud to, that during my presidency, another glass ceiling is being smashed by a worthy and promising officer. He thanked the outgoing uh, um, spokesman because of uh, for his devoted service. So it's another Israeli first we break a lot of things, now we've broken a glass ceiling. Till next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.